And so then you get this quite amazing picture, just as Eve is taken from the side of Adam, from where does the second Adam come from the body of a woman and only the flesh of a woman. And so you get a male, female, female, male in the uh, comprehensiveness of God's reconciliation. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to today's episode of Christ and Culture. My name is Benjamin Quinn. And I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture. Today, our director, Dr. Ken Keithley, will talk with Amy Peeler about, quote, the first and second Adam and Eve. After that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, let's begin this episode with our new segment called Together We Go. In this segment, we want to highlight students, alumni, and friends of Southeastern Seminary who work in everyday vocations. And we want to share how they're using their work to help fulfill the Great Commission. Today's guest on Together We Go is Don Dancer. I'm a retired attorney who retired about 10 years ago. And in the last several years, I moved to Raleigh area. And I spent a lot of my time now besides hanging around grandkids, trying to mentor other people and volunteer through my church. One of the things I learned is it's all about relationships. I started out at the seminary by taking a course in missions because I was interested in the fact that missions don't always go well. And there's always some spiritual conflict. And in between that and the, and the CFC, I got interested in relationships. It's because it's all about relationships. And what I learned from that, and it took me a while to do that, was that it's all about the relationship with, with God first, and then it flows from there. And a lot of us forget that, at least I did. We all expect him to give us all these great assignments, at least in my case. And it took me a number of years through the seminary and through CFC to realize that he's telling me, you're not ready yet for this because the relationship between you and I is not correct. Started focusing more on God and the, the relationship and less on the doing which flowed over to my relationship with other people. I started mentoring other men who were in their 30s, sometimes through a formal process, sometimes through an informal process. And through that, I come back to this, what's my relationship with the Lord? I'm Don Dancer, and together we go. Don Dancer is a dear friend to the Center for Faith and Culture and former student at Southeastern. He's also a retired corporate lawyer who has taught business law courses at the undergraduate and graduate school levels. He lives here in Raleigh, North Carolina, where he spends time mentoring other people, volunteering, hanging out with his wife, as well as with his five grandchildren. A few months ago, we held our Exploring Personhood Conference And one of our guests at that conference was Amy Peeler. Amy Peeler is Associate Professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, and she joins us today on the Christ and Culture podcast. Dr. Peeler, thank you for joining us today. It's such a joy to reconnect. We had such a great conference uh, back in February in which you gave such an interesting talk that I have been thinking about a lot since that time. So let's talk a little bit about the relationship, male and female, uh, of Adam and Eve, and then again, the relationship female-male, Mary and and Jesus. So tell us about Eve 
being taken from Adam. What's going on there? It's such a beautiful picture in Genesis 2, and I'm so grateful for my many Old Testament colleagues who have paid such close attention to this passage. But you get this statement of the image of God and all humanity there in one, but it's so succinct, right? Male and female, God made them in the image of God. And then you move into chapter two and you get this longer story of how this happens. And you have Adam created, uh, God leading all of the animals before him. And he recognizes that these aren't good partners for him. And this is when God said it's not good for Adam to be alone. And so uh, God puts Adam into a deep sleep. And then from his side, uh, God then forms the woman. And some of my Old Testament colleagues have helped me to see that the the Hebrew there is not just like a little rib. I think that's how it gets uh, translated many places, but truly the side, almost like you would cut Adam in half. And then when Eve is brought before him, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And so really from the man, God forms the woman, which is different. Uh, The man is formed from the dust, right? And so you get this um, partnership uh, that Adam just celebrates. Oh, here is someone who can truly help me with the task of stewardship that God has given to me. And so it's a it's such a robust affirmation of all humans being in God's image. And of course, that is one of the fundamental planks of both Jewish and Christian theology. And so you have Eve coming from Adam, and and this puts them connected in a way that's even more powerful than if God had created them both side by side out of the dust of the ground. Yes, uh, yes. It, it really has. In fact, one of the things that you said that I found, found fascinating, the very notion that Eve comes from the body of Adam, this is the closest that, a, that you can have to a man giving birth. Um, <laughs> So, of course, whenever I heard that, I thought, well, of course, that's that's right. That's fascinating. Being that he's a man, if he's going to give birth, God has to put him in a deep sleep because he's not going to go through childbirth. He's not going to go through the agonies uh, that, that women typically do uh, in a heroic way. Um, and, and I'm being facetious here, but you get the idea. Uh, so they are wonderfully connected. Yes. Yeah. And they're also wonderfully connected complementary. And so talk a little a little bit about that, how both of them express the image. It isn't that one expresses half the image and the other expresses the other half, right? That is correct. Thanks for mentioning that, because I think that can be a misunderstanding at times, an understandable one, but not a direction that Christian theology has gone. Every human in and of themselves is in the image of God. Again, this is where we get such an important emphasis in in Jewish and Christian ethics. But there is a beautiful uniting when male and female come together as Genesis lays out in marriage. And so there is a connection there. So my sense is in the ancient Near East is that it's not just kind of uh, one class of people, maybe like the upper class or or the royalty that are like the gods, but it's all humans. And this is displayed, that comprehensiveness is displayed in this really very basic difference among humans, which is sex. And so by saying male and female, that really is saying all people 
And then there's also this beautiful picture of when a man and woman come together, right? It becomes kind of the the cause for, this is why we do marriage in this way, right? In Genesis 2, it's pointing in that direction. There's a beautiful picture of that reuniting, um, that, that union that God intends. So yes, individuals, but then also a beautiful picture of couples. Yeah, and I think it's a fascinating point that you're making here in that it says that all humanity, both male and female, are in the divine image. And this is so very different. I'm thinking now of uh, the Egyptians' uh, understanding of the divine image. The Pharaoh was understood to have descended from the God, the sun God who created uh, the world, but everyone else are are not. Uh, Or you have in other creation myths of the uh, region, I'm thinking of the Babylonian myths, uh, humans are, are burden bearers. Uh, they're created merely to alleviate the, the, the work of the gods. And there's no, no uh, indication that there's anything uh, reflective of, of divinity at all. So right. that's a fascinating point that you're making. Uh, so we have um, this important teaching about both male and female uh, being in the divine image. We find in Genesis chapter three, both male and female, not just one, but both held responsible for what happens. Is that not right? That, that's uh, and of course, this text has been read in so many ways. And so I'm always brought to a point of humility, right, when we come to this text and its varied interpretation. But that being said, it is also clear in the account that the serpent comes to the woman. She, uh, he, he twists the words of God. She is tempted. She is deceived. She takes the fruit and then gives it to, uh, to Adam. And, and it seems like in the narrative that Adam is present. And so there is a culpability, a responsibility for both. Now, I recognize that, I mean, this is a, you know, just such a powerful narrative, right? This is the narrative of the beginning. And in narratives, there are gaps, right? This is what makes interesting reading. Not every single detail is laid out. And so you have to kind of say, well, what do, what's going on? Maybe in the parts that's not narrated. But I do trust that uh, God gives us what we need, right? God gives us all that we need in scripture. It's sufficient. It's sufficient. Exactly. And so you do have a responsibility. I, I think in my paper, I was resisting a possible interpretation that maybe would be kind of easy on Eve. Um, you might say, well, she didn't fully know. or she, My sense is, and really I was kind of starting from the New Testament. That's kind of where my location is in my discipline. And I know we're going to get to Paul in a moment. But my sense is that there really is responsibility for both. Eve is not um, made like a child. Like she's not capable of understanding. No, she has presumably from Adam received God's instructions and then is so tempted by the serpent chooses to disobey as does Adam in the new Testament transgress is used for uh, the actions of both Adam and Eve. So I neither want to go in the direction of some uh, ancient interpreters who kind of blamed Eve for everything, (laughs) they put it all on her feet, nor do I want to go in the direction of, not seeing her full agency, uh, that she had knowledge and that she disobeyed what God had commanded. I think there really is a, a balance of responsibility for both Adam and Eve, though I recognize kind of how that balance is weighted might be different among different interpreters. 
the author of Genesis was a master of brevity. I mean, it's a minimalist uh, uh, account. There are so many things that we wish that Moses had went ahead and filled in a little bit of, 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 you know, it's not a novel. We wish that it would go ahead and say, you know, where exactly was Adam standing at all this time? Uh, was he was he over in another part of the garden or was he watching Eve being tempted by the serpent? Uh, what's going on uh, there? Like you said, we find ourselves having to be very careful in how we fill in those things as we try to interpret. But but we have to, uh, to a certain extent, or else how how else do we tie it together? And in fact, we do have the help of the New Testament to 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 talk to us more about that mm-hmm. in your talk. Uh, and I've heard you speak a couple of times now uh, about the the correspondence of Adam and Eve and now Mary and Jesus. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a bit about the relationship. What did it mean for Eve to be uh, the one who brought uh, the Messiah into the world. Was she a conduit, merely a conduit or what's going on here? Yeah, no, that's a, and, and we, your listeners might very well be aware that of course, this is a very ancient interpretation. It's really some of the earliest fathers, Tertullian, Irenaeus, who are working with this model, they saw kind of immediately leaping off the pages, this symmetry uh, between male and female in creation and recreation. Um, So my own studies of Mary, I grew up Southern Baptist, so incredibly thankful for the way that I was taught to value and put myself under the authority of scripture. Uh, That's a good plug. At least in my version of being a Southern Baptist, and maybe I wasn't paying attention, I didn't hear a whole lot about Mary. I think there are reasons for that. In and, American- and, I, and we could list them. <laughs> but in my own scholarly work, I have discovered her in the last five or six years. Um, and I've been so benefited by this. But what I realized is that the church fathers were right there from the start. <laughs> they were very interested in this. When I first started thinking, I wondered, is the son's incarnation kind of like creation, right? That God just creates this body for the son. And it's like something new and fresh. And then the son is born of Mary. And I discovered very quickly that the church fathers say, absolutely not. (laughs) This is not okay uh, to imagine her only as a vessel. Um, And I believe they're reading the New Testament well. And so I've kind of done the deep dive in the exegesis of the birth narratives. And this is precisely in their historical context, what Matthew and Luke are saying. We believe that Jesus has a body, right? That's pretty important to Christian theology. He really lives, he really suffers, he really dies and is really resurrected. And so it's a wonderful thing to pose the question, where does this body come from? And the text is quite clear that his flesh comes from Mary alone, right? Joseph is not involved. This is what we affirm with virginal conception. And so his body is of her. Now, recognizing we know about DNA, and so God is involved in that process. And I do believe- It is a miracle. It is a miracle, right? We can't kind of science this one out fully. We can have science kind of inform us, but we can't solve all the mystery. Um, And so then you get this quite amazing picture, just as Eve is taken from the side of Adam. From where does the second Adam come? From the body of a woman and only the flesh of a woman. And so you get a male, female, female, male 
in the uh, comprehensiveness of God's reconciliation. And I think that's amazing and beautiful. And it does for both men and women say you are caught up into this redemption, not just kind of your spiritual life, but your bodies, because our uh, faith is an embodied one. And we're all then included. uh, We can all be included in Christ. You're making such an important point about how both male and female are involved because there's been the concern or the objection. How can a male savior speak to the female experience? Mm. Uh, uh, How can someone who has already by just by the virtue of being born a man Mm. understand the travails, the the subservience that Mm. has been the, the universal experience throughout the centuries that women have experienced, how can a, in other words, wouldn't have been better if he's truly <laughs> going to, to suffer oppression and, and suffer all of the afflictions, wouldn't have been better if he'd have been born a woman. And so what I hear you saying, what I hear the early church fathers say is just as both man and woman were involved in the fall. Yeah. That through the incarnation, both woman and man. So talk to us. How how would you then address to those who are making that objection? Yes. And and it's an important objection. I remember as a seventh grader asking this question, maybe not with the all the erudite scholarship of Rosemary Radford Ruther, who first kind of coined this question, can a male savior save women? But I wondered it, right, as a as a 14-year-old, hey, how can Jesus connect with me? Uh, did he know what it was like to really struggle with popularity or any number of things, right? Um, I think there's actually two things going on here. One, we are bumping up against what theologians often refer to as the scandal of particularity. Yes, Jesus is male, and so his experience is going to be shaped by that embodiment. But he's also a Jew. He's in the first century. He's under Roman oppression. There are multiple ways in which his experience is not transferable to every other human who has lived. And this is the scandal of God saying, I am coming through one. I mean, I think we have a foretaste of it in Genesis 12. I'm going to partner with one family, Abraham, and through that family, bless all. But it's not like a salad bar, like God is not available in any and all ways. God is limited to one, but then that pathway is open up for all. And so we all come to Christ in a way and say, hey, he doesn't get me, right? He doesn't map onto all of these things about me. That being said, I also think there's quite importance in this male-female, right? From the very beginning, this is the only way that humans are differentiated. There's not a mention of Jew Gentile. There's not a mention of age or right it's 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 the sexed embodiment that's named at creation and in that way that very important distinction among humanity his embodiment reconstitutes that and it, that kind of goes back to what i was saying a moment ago our faith is not one that we're just all going to float around on clouds in our spirit right we are looking forward to a bodily resurrection our bodies are caught up and so that he embraces uh, female flesh in his male body is that recognition of that fundamental distinction. Um, and, but then his experience is shaped by all the things that are unique about him. So I think there's two different categories of inclusion. In some ways we can't all be included in Christ, his experience, but in his 
physical body, right? The, 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 what, what makes up the human experience, he does embrace all. It's fascinating, as you said, that the, uh, the early fathers, they noted that just as Eve comes from the body of Adam, so Jesus comes from the body of Mary. And it isn't just that Adam is used as a vessel or a conduit by which Eve's body comes. It's from Adam's body. And the way that Jesus is connected to humanity yes. and that he, he's, he's not, you know, God's, God didn't form Jesus out of the dust of the ground and say, I'm going to start over with humans 2.0 you know yeah. i i'm i'm actually going to to redeem the humanity i started with mm-hmm. and i'm going to do this but through the flesh mm-hmm. of mary exactly. so jesus is of mary's flesh you raised another really great point of wouldn't it have been better if he was born female but how do we know that humans start well they're born right and you have to be born in, of a woman as god has designed it and so were he females, that's a funny statement. Did, if the savior came as a female, then you would have a woman giving birth to a woman, right? Well, that wouldn't include all the brothers, right? That wouldn't include male. So this, this has, now there, I think it's important to recognize women in this way, I don't think are limited to our embodiment. And I think that Mary's story is not just giving birth to Jesus, but the way that her faith is expressed throughout his ministry and even after his resurrection. So I'm very careful not to say, hey, women, you get to participate in Christianity just because you have a body. No, both her will, her mind, her emotions, her spirit, all of that is caught up. Just as Jesus's will, body, mind, emotions is in the process of how he does salvation. Oh, one more thing. This is really important. I also want to be quite cautious that I'm not saying Mary and Jesus are equal in achieving salvation. No, she is the one who her yes allows the savior to come, but he and he alone achieves the reconciliation of the world. And uh, that's very clear in the text and actually very clear in the tradition and our Catholic brothers and sisters affirm that as well. I recognize that sometimes there's a little fear of kind of Mary's place in Catholicism and orthodoxy. But uh, if you read the documents, they too affirm the sole sufficiency of the of Christ's salvation. Tell us about your book that you've written on the book of Hebrews. Yeah. So thank you so much for, for asking. So I've been talking a bit about my work on gender, but really where I spend a good amount of my time is in the epistle to the Hebrews. And um, I have a focus on family there, God's identity as father. And that's out with TNT Clark, but that's my dissertation. And I say, nobody wants to read a dissertation. Uh, but I have a little volume co-written with a gentleman, a friend, another Hebrew scholar, Patrick Gray, uh, Hebrews, uh, an interpretation and study guide. So if anyone is thinking, this is a challenging book. How do I dive in? That might be a great way to enter. In the fall, then all of this stuff I've been talking about with male and female identity in Christ uh, will come out in a book with Erdman's. It's called Women and the Gender of God. No, I, I know that God is spirit, that the triune God is not gender, but that's kind of the uh, provocation of the book to invite the reader to consider these questions. And when you see the cover, you see a beautiful icon of Mary. And so right away, you know that her story is going to be quite important in wrestling with these questions. That'll be out in October. So in October, women and the gender of God. That's right. That will be published by Erdman's. We look forward to reading it. We've been listening and talking to Dr. Amy Peeler, professor of New Testament 
at Wheaton College. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you, Ken. What do the scriptures and sciences tell us about the value of human life? If you are attending this year's Southern Baptist Convention in Anaheim, California, please do plan to join us for Valuing Life, Insights from the Bible and Science. This is a special Center for Faith and Culture event at the Southern Baptist Convention. We will explore issues about human personhood from a biblical, scientific, legal, and personal angles. Speakers include Elizabeth Graham from the ERLC, Denise Harrell from the Alliance for Defending Freedom, Aaron Smith, a developmental psychologist from California Baptist University, and others as well. The event is completely free, so if you plan to attend the SBC annual meeting, join us Tuesday evening, June the 14th at 7.30 p.m. You can learn more about this at cfc.scbts.edu or click the link in our show notes. See you there. And now it's time for our segment called On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors at Southeastern tell you what they're reading right now. So, Dr. Quinn, what's on your bookshelf right now? The bookshelf is always full, Nathaniel, sometimes with things I want to read, sometimes with things I don't necessarily want to read but must (laughs) read. But here's one that I'm really enjoying. Um, I have four children, and my oldest son is 12, turning 13, later this fall, and uh, one book that I stumbled across by John Tyson, who is originally from Australia, but a pastor in New York, church planter in New York, wrote a book uh, that came out in the last couple of years, maybe last year, called The Intentional Father. So The Intentional Father by John Tyson, where he simply lays out uh, what he calls kind of a practical guide to raising young boys, especially boys uh, full of bravery and courage and what he calls uh, some fire in their heart. And it's been fantastic. To be honest with you, it's been way better than I expected. Um, Most of the time when I'm reading to or listening to a book, about every third sentence or so, I'm thinking, I'm not sure about that, or I think I would say that differently. But with John's book, uh, I found myself just as a a parent and also a parent who's a pastor, just as John is, raising young boys. um, I find myself often taking notes and thinking. In fact, I got not only the audible version of this, I got the hard copy of this so I could take better notes. He lays out a very practical kind of guide between ages 13 and 18 to, to do one's best to make sure that you have the important conversations that you want to have with your son. In fact, he sets it up this way, and he does so talking about what he did with his son, Nate, during that season of their life, where he said he imagined first, um, when, he said, when Nate walks away, whether that's 18, 19, whatever age that it is, but when he walks away that day that he leaves our house, when he walks away, I want to know that we had what conversations, and that I had instilled what skills into him. And he starts out with, let's just jot those things down, and then let's reverse engineer a process that begins around age 13, or whatever age makes sense, but approximately age 13 until 18, um, to ensure that those conversations have been had, and hopefully that those skills can have been cultivated in our sons. And so I've loved it. I have one chapter left on it, but I've already skimmed it. I look forward to going back into it, and I've I've really enjoyed that book and would strongly recommend it for any men listening, especially men who are pastors and who are raising boys. Making a note of that for myself, since I have three boys of my own. I mean, that's something uh, that uh, we think about, want to raise them well. And so, uh, yeah, I'm totally taking a note for myself. And I want to mention, too, even even if your, your boys are already grown or you only have girls or whatever the case is, but especially if you're a ministry leader, 
and you have any part in discipling or forming men, these are men who maybe they are men who have their own boys that they're raising, or if you're a part of a college group or you, you disciple kids in youth group, this is it's just a fantastic resource to think about what it means um, to provide sort of pathways for manhood, not machoism, but manhood, godliness, Christ-likeness. Um, and it's just a, it's a fantastic resource. I'd really recommend it. Awesome. Well, thank you for that recommendation, Dr. Quinn. And thank you all for listening today. If you enjoyed today's episode, do us a huge, gigantic favor. Go to Apple Podcasts. Take 30 seconds. That's all it'll take. And give us a five-star rating and brief review. It'll be a big help in helping us spread the word about the Christ and Culture podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.